everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm so excited to be here with Claudia de la Cruz in person. We are at the People's Forum studio, as you can see from the cute little stickers I have on. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Make sure you subscribe. You hit subscribe and then the bell. And Claudia, I'm very excited to be talking to you. I'm very excited to be here. And Thank you. Yay. <laughs> we are going to play a clip of you. So Claudia, by the way, is an organizer, a mom, a co-founder of the amazing space, the People's Forum, a theologian, and she is running for president with the PSL, the Party of Socialism and Liberation. And she recently, you recently, I'll talk to you, you recently were at a at BlackRock. You disrupted BlackRock to call out their war profiteering. Tell us why you chose BlackRock, what happened, and then we'll watch the video of you at BlackRock. Well, November 9th was uh, an international call for action in solidarity of Palestine. And so there were many actions that took place across the United States and across the world. Um, and we decided to interrupt the business as usual that BlackRock continues to do, um, mostly because a lot of people don't know who BlackRock is and what they do. And, you know, they make money out of death. They make money out of, um, they invest in five of the biggest um, war profiteering corporations. So Lockheed Martin is one, which actually on October 8th reported to have an increase in their sales of stock precisely because there was a there was a war that was being waged against the Palestinians, and so um, you know uh, there's a Boeing as well. And again, the big five corporations that are profiteering from war are heavily invested on by BlackRock, who spends over thirty billion dollars in investments. Um, it's also very interesting to to note that the CEO of BlackRock has also investments in the New York Times. And so you see, you know, just how uh, polluted, just how entrenched these different fronts are to wage war and also to report war in a way that benefits capitalism. And so we, we know that Citibank is also one of the um, leading forces and investors in war and many others, Albate systems right. as well. Um, and so what we are attempting to do is identifying those who are profiting from the slaughter and the genocide in Gaza, but also around the world, and stop them because there's no reason why they should continue with business as usual. There's no reason why they should continue to go and sleep a peaceful rest, right. you know, while children are being bombed, while hospitals are being, like life-given infrastructure right. is being destroyed elsewhere. And BlackRock has also, you know, been a point of disruption in Zimbabwe and different parts of Africa. And so they have, again, a large um, number of investments and they receive a lot of money from, from war that's waged on mostly people of color, mostly indigenous people, mostly poor people and working class people around the world. And so we, um, we took part in that action and we will continue to take actions like that. We have a, a next 
action on the 17th or other actions happening across the world also uh, as an international call of solidarity with Palestine. And there's another one on the 29th that we are very, very much committed to not allowing for business to continue as usual right. for as long as Gaza is not left alone and allowed, so to, allowed breathe. to breathe. Right. Yeah. And are those events you can tell us about or are they going to be surprises? Well, there's a couple of surprises. I, uh, there's folks that in New York City right now, there's a lot of folks that are going out and are speaking with businesses, local businesses, to be able to uh, have the economy have a level of impact. And actually, a lot of local business owners are agreeing to close that day, to close on November oh, wow. in, in November 17th, right. I'm sorry, in solidarity. Uh, with Palestine, because the, the the overwhelming majority of New Yorkers are opposing genocide. Um, there's such a disconnect between the officials, the politicians, um, you know, such a disconnect between the White House and what people are actually demanding that it's it's is uplifting very sharp contradictions in, you know, a government that calls itself a democracy, a state that calls itself a representative of the people. And when the people are demanding for them to stop supporting genocide, they're, they completely disregard and uh, reject the call and actually pump in more money into, right. into war. And so, yeah. It's so disgusting. So let's take a look at that video uh, at BlackRock. was the reaction to that? The reaction, well, in terms of like, I mean, I think that there's been a, a lot of support for the action. I think that people understand, you know, how disgusting it is to have corporations like that in the United States. I mean, I think that cap, like capitalism is becoming ever more apparent to people and how harmful it is, not only to the working class people in the United States, but also the working class people globally, because capitalism is a global system. And so these corporations are making killer profits, like literally and figuratively, like they are making killer profits from from death. Right. Um, when you see the levels of negligence of the state in regards to people in the United States with the levels of homelessness, with the lack of access to health care, with, the, you know, it's a neglect that is deadly, that it causes the lives of millions of people Every year. I mean, millions of people die as a result of poverty in the wealthiest country in the world. And you have these huge corporations that are making investment in death. They're not investing in infrastructure. They're not investing or supporting anything that has to do with life-giving projects. But they are making a killer profit by the deaths of people. And even though BlackRock doesn't necessarily manufacture weapons, it doesn't produce weapons, um, again, it supports and invests in those manufacturers of weapons and the technology to surveil resistance and surveil and oppress people elsewhere. And so I think people are coming more, the tides are turning. You know, I think that there's a large group of young people that have seen the 
the dysfunctionality of the system that have seen how they've been lied to and how their parents have been lied to and, and the ways in which we have been again neglected and, um, our needs are not being met. And Palestine was just kind of like, you know, it, it was, it, it's a microcosm of all of the different fronts of struggles that we experience. And, and therefore for a lot of these young people to see that there was a, a response that was affirming of Israel as a colonial apartheid genocidal state has has created a sense of indignation that I think as 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 activists, as organizers, as educators, as people that are concerned with justice, we need to be able to take this moment and intensify struggle um, because it's a, it's a very deep moment of radicalization for the majority of young people in this country. I mean, 300,000 people took the streets of Washington, D.C. and across the many cities, over 300 cities, there were th thousands of people in the streets. And, and that's that's a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, that's way more than I've ever seen. And I've been doing a lot of like pro-Palestine and, and, you know, liberation struggle work and movement work for a long time. I mean, for 30 years, and I have never seen a response like that. And it has to do with the, the, the way in which all these different things are colliding. Like the economic system is collapsing in terms of, you know, the livelihood of people in the United States. You have, again, the continuous neglect of both Democrats and Republicans. You have people who are desperate. You know, you have two million children who have lost their access to health care in this country. You have people that are dying from preventable diseases. And so all of these things and on top of that, you have an administration that was supposed to be the lesser of two evils right. supporting genocide. People are done. Yeah. So we're going to talk more about your campaign, your uh, your movement. But sticking with Israel, um, I want to talk to you more about why the United States stands so unwaveringly with Israel. And here, giving us a hint, is none other than Joe Biden. So we have a videotape of Joe Biden. This is from 1986. If we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. So there we have it. Joe Biden saying if Israel didn't exist, we would have to invent it. So what what does he mean when he says that? I, mean, I think, you know, and, and I want to kind of step back from Joe Biden and Netanyahu, right? Sure. Because I think the history goes way back. Right. Um, and I should also say that he said this more recently than 1986. Yeah, he, said yeah, he said it the other day. Yeah, basically. And, and, and to understand kind of like the... They call it a special relationship. Right. That's how they, they, you know, and, and, and it really is a, a genocidal relationship. It's a relationship between U.S. empire and colonialism. It's a relationship that is rooted in maintaining dominance and sustaining capitalism. That's the relationship. You know, Joe Biden is just a representative of that project. Netanyahu is just a representative of that project. And everyone that comes along in either of these projects is there precisely to support the projects, support U.S. imperialism and support the colonialist state of Israel. And we see that with Obama. 
and Obama's position, you know, we see that with previous ministers of Israel, like it is the defense of the project. We see it that it's a bipartisan issue, is an issue that both Democrats and Republicans take to heart, and they both understand that there's a special relationship that needs to be maintained. Like, we need to understand the United States stakes in the Middle East. You know, while they were starting to pivot away from it um, and pivoting to Asia, pivoting to China, um, it's still a very important region for the United States of America. And a lot of people may say and argue, you know, the United States does what Israel wants them to do. And the reality of the matter is that it's kind of backwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, because Israel is kind of like an outpost. Right. It's a military outpost for the United States. And when you hear Biden speak about the project of Israel and how it needed to be invented, it needed to be invented precisely to preserve the interests of the United States in the Middle East, to keep all the other countries in check. Right. Right. Um, we see it through sanctioning. We see it through occupation. We see it through the constant attack of countries like Iran, like Syria, like Lebanon, you know, and so I think it's important for us to understand that this relationship goes beyond Joe Biden. Sure. It goes beyond Netanyahu. It is a colonial project that serves U.S. imperialism and it serves to preserve the hegemony of the United States in that territory and obviously capitalism, like the, the investment, the deadly investment of the United States of $4 billion a year to Israel is cheaper than having foot like boots on the ground. Right. It's yeah, it's an outpost, like you were yeah, saying. It's, it's cheaper than having boots on the ground. And it's also cheaper in the sense of like, they have Israel to do their dirty bid. Right. You know? And so I think, again, it's very important for us to see it within that frame and that understanding that, you know, yeah, we want genocide Joe out, but what we really, really need is to have U.S. imperialism out. Yeah. What we really, really need is to be able to end colonial relate, like the colonial state of Israel. What we really, really need is to attack the global capitalist system. Because unless we do that, we're not resolving the issue that, you know, that Gaza is experiencing, that Palestine is experiencing, or Haiti is experiencing, or Zimbabwe. Like, those are things, again, that we need to be really clear for the United States in its construct as a capitalist society and as in the empire, it serves them to have projects like NATO. It serves them to have projects like AFRICOM. It serves them to have projects like the Southern Command. And it serves them to have Israel. It serves them to have Israel. And so I think, you know, if we really understand what's happening and what the root of the problem is, we don't want to deal with the symptoms. We want to deal with the actual illness. Right. And... We're going to talk more about uh, your policy and your uh, campaign, but first tell me how you got into politics. Do you come from a radical family? Uh, have you always had your politics? Did something radicalize you? I mean, I think, you know, I come from a working class background. My, my dad um, was, a la- was a laborer. He, wa- he always called himself a laborer. He, he was a construction worker. Um, my mom worked for the Department of Education in New York City for over 35 years with uh, children with special needs. Um, and so I come from a working class family. My grandmother told stories about the dictatorship of the Dominican Republic, which she, you know, with very little uh, academic studies, 
um, because she worked the sugarcane fields and the rice fields in the Dominican Republic, understood that the United States had his his hands right. in in backing that dictatorship. She understood that there was a you know war that was imposed on Haitians by the dictatorship that was also supported by the United States. And so in her, you know— That was the one that I think we called, he's, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch, yeah, Trujillo? Yeah, Trujillo. The dictator. Yeah, the dictator. Yeah. yeah, you know, and, yeah, the Dominican Republic. And so my grandmother was born in 1932, you know, and she lived and survived through, as a black woman, um, the dictatorship of Trujillo. So even if I was not, like— initially given theoretical foundations in practice, just as a working class person coming from a working class background of black folks who survived a dictatorship in the Dominican Republic, there was a level of politics that I couldn't escape. I was born in the South Bronx, which is the poorest congressional district in the United States. There were a lot of questions about why we had to you know, go to the type of schools we went mm. and why, you know, we didn't get the things we needed or why we needed to share, you know, initially <clears throat> share an apartment that was a two bedroom apartment with two families. Like there were a lot of questions that were raised that were political questions and that my parents, you know, not as political people, but as people who understood the world were able to give some sort of framing and at the age of 13, when I was getting in enough trouble, my mom decided that in her wisdom that I needed to get more of a, of a base, more of a foundation, more of a grounding because I was getting into a lot of trouble asking all these questions. And she took me to a church that was a church, uh, founded on the principles of liberation mm -hmm. theology. And, um, and it was in that church that I found myself with a lot of atheists who were socialists who came to church to build politics. Right. Um, and it was really interesting because it was like no church that I'd ever been at 13. It caught my eye. My, my first, uh, campaign was around, you know, the getting the U.S. Marines out of Vieques. Uh, and that kind of shaped my understanding of what colonialism was and how strategic certain parts of the Caribbean were to the United States and its sustainability of U.S. empire and its sustainability of capitalism. And so, you know, through struggle, I was politicized, but I was politicized at a very young age, and I was surrounded by militants of different, you know, communist, socialist parties, uh, popular movements in Latin America. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to Cuba as, as, a, as a teenager um, and was further radicalized, you know, in the ways of seeing the possibility of building a socialist society with different values, um, and different, you know, priorities. And so, so for me, the process of radicalization or politicization, um, was one through struggle. Like once I engaged in community, I was able to answer a lot of the questions that were there before as a working class person. And so one of the things that I heart, like believe wholeheartedly is in the potential of working class people to be able to articulate and solve their problems. Um, there just needs to be given the space to do that. And so, um, not because of my own experience, but the experience of most people that I've met in the, in the different spaces that I've been in. You know, you provide the space for people to reflect on their reality, to be able to find answers to the questions that are there and find collectively solutions to their material reality. And you have people politicized. Mm. And, um, I just want to let people know, my viewers know that we're going to be talking on Thursday. This is a very special stream. So we're doing this stream tonight. And then on Thursday, we're going to be talking to Youssef Monayer about the call, um, from, uh, what is the, the thing that, um, 
Rashida Tlaib got in trouble for her. My oh, mind is blanking. From the river, from to, the river the to the sea. Yeah, from the river to the sea. So we're going to be talking about that on Thursday. And I want to get back, though, to what you were just talking about. Uh, so that was, that was your trajectory. When did you get involved in PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation? Well, I met the PSL through struggle. I met the PSL uh, probably a year after it was founded. Um, although a lot of its members I had seen and met in different spaces, but the party itself I actually met um, at the youth festival in Venezuela. Oh, in I was 2005, there. 2005, you see? I was there, yeah. Um, and we, we met, and I, and I was completely, like, drawn to the comrades that were there because they had a booklet that was, that, that, uh, was named Why Socialism. And as a young person myself who was organizing already— you know, who has socialist ideals, but didn't necessarily or wasn't necessarily involved or a member of a party. I thought it was really um, necessary to to have su such an instrument in the United States, to have an instrument, a party. Um, I didn't become a member till 2020, but we have been doing work together in New York City and internationally um, for 19 years. Okay. So I, you know, I have a lot of my dear friends and comrades are party members. And so it made sense when I decided that, you know, and I shared this with someone else before, like a lot of us call ourselves socialists and a lot of us call ourselves Marxists and Leninists. And we kind of, per we claim certain things that, that are, that are good that we should be able to claim and identify with. But I believe that unless you are within a party discipline, Within you are like unless you're part of a collective of people who assume that ideology, then that ideology could become kind of cosplay at mm. some point. Okay, you know it could become performative. You need to be accountable to a group of people, and you need to be within a discipline to actually be able to grow politically and be able to, um, you know, be challenged um, in that process of growing and be held accountable that you are not acting as a, you know, agent, a, you know, solo agent right. and, and speaking because you, you want to, uh, build some sort of grandiose personality. Right. Like it's not, a brand. yeah, brand. Yeah. And so I've always understood movement is not a brand, you know, and I think that consistent consistency in that process of building people power in the process of building projects and movements, um, has, allowed me to be in contact with the party. Like I've, I've shared this before. I've never been solo. I've always been part of an organization, whether that organization was the church initially or was a young women's collective or was an artist collective. Like I've always been part of collective processes yeah. because I've always understood that there are things that I could do on my own, but there are bigger things that I could do with other people. Mm -hmm. And with the party is just, again, the discipline of it, the structure of it, um, the ways in which you're able to practice building a society you want to be a part of. Right. So speaking of building, uh, how did you decide to run for president? Well, <laughs> in that process, I don't, it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a decision that I took on my own. It wasn't a decision that, you know, um, that I decided, well, I'm going to run for president. So within inside of the party, we have Congress and the Congress happens every four years. Our last Congress happened 2022, which was last year. And we decided in that Congress that we were going to participate in the electoral process. We had done it before. We did it in 2020 and we did it also in 2016. And it's been a practice of the party to do that. 
our understanding of electoral politics is very much within the tradition of communist parties and socialists in the United States and around the world. We do it because we understand it's necessary to have a political intervention in a moment where everybody's paying attention to elections. We do it because we understand it's necessary to uplift the sharp contradictions that exist in a capitalist society that calls itself a democracy, but that we know is not a democracy, that is a bourgeois democracy, that is a dollar democracy, that responds to Wall Street, that responds to the bankers, that responds to corporations. And so we do it as a process of kind of creating another poll. You know, right now it's a third party option. It's a option outside of the corporate duopoly. It is an instrument for folks to be able to understand politics beyond the every four year rhetoric that we've learned. Like we've learned that politics is something we do every four years, when in reality is politics is something that we do every day and that we should do every day. Our every decision, our every creation, like production as workers is a political act has to do with the economy. And so I think being able to deepen that, that consciousness is also part of our decision to be able to join in electoral politics, being able to put forth that understanding of politics and that understanding that we need a political instrument outside of the corporate duopoly. And more, more importantly, we need a political instrument that is socialist, that actually puts people, prioritizes people, puts people's needs first. Um, we know what liberals do, and that is not socialism. <laughs> and we, you know, we know and understand that we need to work with a broad spectrum of people. However, we are here to be able to uplift socialist politics, socialist ideologies, and socialist values, because we understand that that is the only option outside of capitalism. So let's actually take a look at your campaign video with, featuring you, of course, and Karina, uh, your running mate. Does it ever feel like the political system is working against us? Like regardless of who we vote for, the outcome is always the same? We're told this country is a democracy, but more and more it feels like a corporate regime. No matter which party is in power, only the rich ever come up on top. Today, the rich is 1% or more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans combined. On top of that, heat waves, floods, and hurricanes are becoming a regular occurrence. Artificial intelligence is threatening to replace millions of jobs, and the threat of World War III is more serious than ever. Humanity is facing nothing short of an existential crisis, and what do the two parties offer us? Culture war is meant to divide us, and breadcrumbs disguise the solutions that come nowhere near meeting the scale of the problem. Let's just say what we all know deep inside. Career politicians and real estate moguls are never going to save us. Corporate America has two parties. Shouldn't the working class have at least one? I am Claudia de la Cruz. And I'm Karina Garcia. And we're running for the president and vice president of the United States on the ticket of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. We're not career politicians and we don't have billionaire friends. We're educators, community organizers, and mothers. You don't need to tell us that the working class makes this country run. I'm from the South Bronx, and we know what hard work looks like. I know this country wouldn't last a day without the working class. So isn't it about time that we take charge? This campaign is for all of us living paycheck to paycheck. We're working multiple jobs. For all of us who are sick of watching the rich get richer while we can't even pay our rent. We don't just want to tax the billionaires. We want them out of power entirely. 
We need to seize big pharma, seize big tech, seize the big banks instead of letting them run our government. We need an economy that puts the people before profit, an economy built to generate prosperity for everyone, not just a handful of billionaires. This campaign is not a one-time thing. We're running to build a political organization that finally gives voice to the working people of this country. It's time to stop going around in circles while the elites change places every four years. We think this country deserves a better option, a socialist option. So end capitalism before it ends us. That's your slogan. Yes. What does that mean? Capitalism is a deadly system. And it's, again, a deadly system because it neglects the needs of the working class. We live in a class society where you have the very small minority who owns the majority of the wealth produced by the majority of people. And you have the majority of people who are struggling to live and survive. And again, it's a global system. It's not only a system within the United States. Um, I think we saw, if we remember and we could get past, you know, the, the hor horrendous moments of COVID in 2019, there were many people around the world that were revolting. You know, you had Colombia, you had Chile, you had people in Africa, you had people in India, and they were all revolting against neoliberal neo projects, which is capitalism. Um, in the United States, you also had glimpses of that, and you still have glimpses of that. You have people across industries that are striking because they cannot afford to live while you have one individual in each of these corporations that are making billions, millions, trillions of dollars off the backs of workers. Workers continue to have to negotiate their exploitation with capitalists. And so when we are saying that we need to end capitalism, it's precisely that system that does not care whether we live or die because they will make a profit anyway. And so, you know, when we're talking about, we have in our platform, we, we, we can, there's things that we could do if we gain power as the working class, which is seizing the top 100 corporations. And what would that do? It would help reorganize society in a way where workers can decide how to spend the wealth that is produced by them. You know, again, we have a dysfunctional society where healthcare is collapsing. We have a dysfunctional society where education, I mean, I just, as I was coming here, I received a message that Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, was going to hold a town hall meeting to share just, you know, budget cuts around education. We're talking about the wealthiest city right. in the country. And you're talking about further budget cuts while at the same time, New York State provides $300 million every year for that $4 billion that is given to Israel. And so it's not that you don't have the money. Right. It's that you are prioritizing, again, profit over people. And so if we're talking about seizing these corporations that, again, are making trillionaires out of individuals, while they're just sitting back and millions of people are being exploited, just think about the society we could build. It's not impossible. It's actually very doable. And, and I, I dare 
folks ask themselves, like, is it really idealistic to think about the reorganization of society or is it idealistic and crazy, insane to continue to think that capitalism will resolve actually any of our problems? Right. And I think that the insanity is actually thinking that capitalism will resolve any of our problems. And so we need to take more action. We need to engage in organized struggle and we need to be ready to take power. We often talk about reforms, but for as long as capitalists have power of the economy, have power over politics, have power over what we produce, the reality is that reforms could be taken away from us at any moment and they could justify why they're taking away those reforms. And so what we need as working class people, again, is to have the economic, political, and social power to build the society that we need to build. But we cannot do that under capitalism. And so how would you do that? How would you seize uh, the biggest 100 corporations? I mean, again, I think we need to be able to gain the political and economic power to do that. I think that there's masses of people that we need to reach. Ordinary people, you know, if you speak to your Uber driver, if you speak to your person serving you coffee in the bodega, if you speak to construction workers, which is what my dad used to do, People are not able to live. Yeah. They have to make very, you know, crazy choices every day. You're talking about mothers who have to pay nearly 45K in childcare to be able to work. That's the reality that we're in. And so for people in their day to day, understanding that the system doesn't work for them. They know it. They know it in their gut, even if they may not necessarily be able to articulate and may not know what the path is. I think for, for us, those of us who are socialists, for the party, for people who are even progressives, the task is to be able to convince and build the confidence of working class people that it is possible for, for us to build a different society, that it is possible for us to build an instrument of the working class that is divorced from that duopoly that we know. But do we need to be able to gain power to be able to do that? Yes, we do. And that comes, again, at different levels and different phases and different forms. But I think we're in a critical moment where if the majority of the people are suffering and we're able to tap into the, the, that, that suffering and that consciousness and organize that, we could build a new society. So how do we do that? How do we seize the 100 companies? We need the majority of people in our side. Okay. And... uh how do you do that? Well, organize. You got to organize. I mean, one of the things that I appreciate about the PSL is that it's not a four-year yeah. party. It's right. not a party that shows up every four years that says, you know, we need to build um, to reach the 5%, which we do because we do because that allows us to be able to, as third parties, um, join debates, access different things. Um, that is necessary. But there's another component to that that we need. And again, it goes back to deepening the consciousness of our class, having our people understand that we are not in isolation, that we don't have to suffer everything we suffer alone, that we could be part of a collective process, that we could be part of a larger group of people, which is a working class people, and we could fight together. I mean, there's no bigger example of what we can do than all these labor struggles that are popping up. Like, there is no bigger example than the UAW comrades, folks, that are organizing and are making strides. You know, the Amazon workers, the Starbucks, the people are tired and they understand that they cannot do things on their own and they cannot do that outside of organization. 
And so I feel like it is a challenge and a task for socialists to be able to, first of all, proudly, boldly, and courageously take on the label. Yes, we are socialists. Mm -hmm. We believe in a new society and start building instruments where we could actually build the movement that we need that is independent from the ruling class. And we cannot do that every four years. We have to do that every day. So I'm sure you get this question that I'm about to ask you. Um, Trump is worse than Biden. Anything that you do that will hurt Biden is going to help Trump. What's your response to that? I, uh, I'd say they have to read George Jackson. George Jackson used to say, um, fascism is here. You know, people gave us the scare with with uh, Biden's election. Like, we need to build an anti-fascist, anti-Trump coalition, right. and Biden won. Genocide, Joe, right. won. Is he any better? And he's not. And neither is anyone in the Democratic Party, because again, it's about the project. It's about defending the U.S. empire and defending capitalism. And so when you're talking about Trump, Trump is a result. He's a product of capitalism. He's a product of what the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have done or have not done in relationship to his citizenship. And so when people are like, you know, anything that we do against Joe Biden or anything that we do against the Democratic Party, they don't have an understanding of politics and they don't have an understanding of U.S. empire and capitalism. At the end of the day, these two parties have more in common with each other than they do with the large majority mm -hmm. of people in the United States. It's a, it's, an, it's a question of class interest. They're interested in sustaining and growing the capitalist system in the United States and growing U.S. empire and maintaining hegemony. That's what they're interested. They're not interested with whether we eat. They're not interested whether we have jobs. They're not interested in our, you know, how, how we invest in infrastructure or how do we invest in this and that for the people. That is not what they're interested in. In fact, you know, again, when we think about bourgeois democracy, it's not hard to think about the many moments in which people in the United States have taken to the streets to demand things that they've never been granted. And then when they are granted that, that is easily taken away. Roe versus Wade. Right. You know, um, they pin, they usually say, well, we don't have money for this, but we have money for that. They pin different struggles against each other. Yeah. Usually, you know, when they when this, this country does not suffer from a deficiency of funds. Right. It doesn't suffer from lack. In fact, it's abundant in its production. It's abundant in its wealth. And so we need to be able to, again, understand what they represent and what they're there for. They're not there to protect us. They're there to protect finance capital. They're there to protect their interests across the globe. And we are just political pawns. And for as long as we allow them to do it, they will continue to do it. Yeah, and I think this moment of genocide Joe, as you called him, uh, the way that Biden is reacting to Israel and the way he's enabling their genocide, I think has made a lot of formerly blue no matter who people reconsider that blue no matter who. Yeah. Because yeah. people were, you know, this is, he was supposed to be better than Trump. And yeah, Trump would be, what Trump would be doing would be using more racist rhetoric mm -hmm. than Biden. But Biden is, in some ways, 
sanitizing what Israel's doing. I mean, he's totally trying to sanitize it. The question is how successful he is, because hopefully you can see through him Mm -hmm. and how absolutely full of it he is. Um, But I think this is a real wake-up moment for a lot of people. And then what's interesting is you get people who are angry at Mm -hmm. those folks, especially like Arab Americans who are saying, not going to do it again. I voted for Biden. I'm not going to because of his dehumanization and slaughter of Palestinians. And then you get people angry yelling at those people. It's like, why aren't you yelling at Biden? That's right. To call for a ceasefire. That's right. If you care so much about electoral politics, how do you think you're helping? By telling someone that they're, I don't know, like going to bring around fascism. You think they're going to be like, oh, well, now that the person's yelling at me and telling me I'm a terrible person and a fascist, now I'm not going to, now I am going to vote for Biden? I mean, but we see, we see, like, example, again, Biden is a symptom of the the problem. Like Obama, in his response to Palestinians, was also Biden. Like, so yeah, he, yeah, sure. It, it, he took he took the same approach yeah. because ultimately the most important thing for Democrats and Republicans is the relationship with Israel that they right. understand is a special relationship that they cannot break because the interests of the United States are the priority. Sure. And so I think you know for those folks that are like vote blue no matter who it doesn't matter who comes in that you know in that blue tag is the same thing, and they defend the same thing. There are warmongers. I mean, in fact, a lot of the attacks to working-class people have happened under Democrat uh, Democrat rule in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, from labor to immigration. Like Bill Clinton, the, NAFTA, yeah, yeah. the cages that were built right. in the border that Trump used were built by Obama. Yeah. And Biden right. was the right depo- there. The deporter in You chief. know what I'm saying? And so I think... We need to think really critically, really critically about this, what they've sold to us and we have passively taken as, as truth. You cannot pretend that those people who have investments in your exploitation, investments in your oppression to be the ones to give you the path to liberation. They are not going to do it. Not the Democrat, not the Republicans, because their investment is in everything that is against you. Right. So... Okay, that that speaks to Biden. Um, obviously, I, we don't even need to talk about Trump because I don't think there are any <laughs> Trump fans in my audience. Um, but what about? Uh, I know that you are you did an event, a yeah. great event with Cornell West. Yeah. So Cornell West is running. Jill Stein is running. How do you see them fitting into this? I mean, we have done a lot as a party. We've done a lot of work with both Jill Stein and Cornell West. There's a lot of respect. Um, they are part of the larger movement in the left. And so, you know, we we are very grateful for any moment that we have to collaborate. What what I think the difference is, yeah. which I think is what you're getting at, is that we are running explicitly as socialists and that we are running a campaign that is to build a political organization that does work again every day. We're not um, running independently. We're running as the Party for Party Socialism. Party, yeah part of uh, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And we have developed an instrument for working class people to come in and get activated and organizing in their communities. That is what we're here to offer people. People who don't engage in voting, you know, have a place in our in our infrastructure. People who engage in voting have the option to vote for something that aligns with their politics, with their values and their ideology. And so it's a... 
it's a, it's a different way of thinking about politics, again, that goes beyond the four-year electoral process. It's not about putting your faith in someone. It's about putting your faith in building political organization of our working class that is independent of the ruling class. And that is very explicitly socialist and wants to build a socialist society that we do so desperately need in this country. And another thing that you're... Um so you guys are you guys are like frenemies, you and Cornell and Joe. Oh no, no what, what can we call it? I wouldn't call it frenemies. Comrades, I comrades, would, but running with different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know. I just get, want to use the word. <laughs> I know we're not frenemies. <laughs> um, you know, I think we're aligned in a lot of things. Like for example, and we are aligned in the anti-war yeah. movement. Like Joe Stein has been really good in understanding the politics behind Ukraine, Russia, yeah. understanding that NATO is actually a war between NATO and Russia. Yeah. And it's a war of the United States that Ukraine, the Ukraine yeah, war. Yeah. Ukraine is a proxy, you know, right. it's pro proxy war. And so I think she's been really vocal about it, very clear about it politically, you know, in terms of Cornell, same thing. Um I think that there's differences. Like we are here for the total liberation of Palestine. Ceasefire is the urgent call. Right. But just the beginning. Just the beginning. But if Palestine is not totally free, then we risk having the continuation of threats against babies, against innocent people, against civilians. We still have an occupation. Right. We still have Israel determining whether people eat, whether they have electricity, who goes in and who comes out. We still have young women being practically, you know, harassed sexually because in prison, in, in prison but also like going from one checkpoint to yeah. the next. You know, daily be, humiliation. Yeah, daily humiliation. Yeah. And so we want the total liberation of Palestine. And we say that with our whole chest. And we fight and been in the struggle for as long as the party has been there, many of us before then. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think um there is a there's a significant difference. And Stein and West don't have that same I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that they do or don't. Okay. Um, but it's not as much as part I think, there. Yeah, I think it's not as much. I think that they are, you know. Cornell, when he initially came out, was talking about two sides of the story, was talking about, you know, uh, both, you know, communities. And, the, and the, the reality is that there is no two sides of the story. I, there, is, occupation. there is an occupation. Is those who are occupying and those who are resisting occupation. Mm -hmm. That's the story. You know, those that are being ex exploit exploited and oppressed and those who are fighting to liberate themselves. That's the story, you know, to take up. Um, and I even heard it's like very similar to the line of AOC when she says, you know, like release the hostages. My son, who's nine years old, understands that if you take up in war, you take prisoners is because you need to trade them for other prisoners. And one prisoner is the equivalent of a thousand prisoners in Pal that Palestinians have in Israeli prisons, you know? Right, right now there's 10,000 and they're talking about 200 hostages while Palestinians have 10,000 in Israeli prisons being tortured. So it's also interesting because, I mean, what I can't wait for, I'm sure it's going to come out, but Israel, we know Israel has nothing but disdain for Palestinians. Of course. But what's interesting is that they don't even care about protecting the, the hostages. No. They're bombing the They're buildings. They're bombing everything. Yeah. 
And that is what I'm like, guys, you had one job. I mean, I know they're full of it, but you know, this whole, they, they, they want to, their priority is cleansing Gaza they, of Palestinians and they're not going to let these Israeli hostages get in the way of that. I mean, they're saying they're on, unro- they're, they're unrolling the Nakba, Nakba 2023, yeah. which is bullshit because they have been, never stopped. They've never stopped. Right. This has been ongoing. And the Nakba, uh, for people who don't know, that means, uh, catastrophe or disaster. Translate in different ways, but it's Arabic for catastrophe, disaster, and it's a reference to 1948, the ethnic cleansing of yeah. Palestine. 700,000 Palestinians were displaced. And since then, many thousands more, you know, and now you have millions of people who are being displaced. That is what yeah. forcefully, violently displaced. Those who are not being killed right. are being driven out of their land. And so what to say, Two sides of the story? No, no, no. There's no two sides of the story. The United States of America finances these people right. militarily and financially. It's not the same when it comes to the resistance of Palestine. And so that was a huge kind of like, oh, yeah. we're not, um, I don't know how I feel about that. It's one thing to say, you know, because it is true. We're anti-Zionist. We're not anti-Semitic. Right, of course. Because there are people who are Christian, who are Jews, who are there. Right. In that territory and who before 1948 lived together. Right, coexisted. Yeah, yeah. Without the intervention of the United States and the creation of Israel as a colonial project. Right. And so we're not anti-Semitic, but we are anti-genocide. We are anti, you know, the oppression and exploitation of the majority of people in that land. Well, how could it be anti-Semitic when you have Jews like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, J. Fred, all a these lot, Jews yeah. are getting arrested yeah, because exactly. they also are against genocide. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's what's so scary about this is Israel pretending to speak in the name of Jews. One of the silver linings of this is that I think it's getting harder and harder to pretend that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism when you see so many Jews that's right. at the forefront of these protests, right. some of them, not that's all right. of them, of course. Um, but just to, I think that there was a, for, for some of these folks, there was a hesitancy on October 8th. Yeah. Right, right after, right? To be able to take a bold position and say, no, wait a minute. The resistance is actually justified because we're talking about occupied people. There was a, there was a hesitancy because they did, you know, they wanted to do the, they didn't want to answer the question, do you condemn Hamas? Right. And I think for us as a political party, as a PSL, we had really clear line. We support the total liberation of Palestine and we understand that resistance is justified when occupation is there. And what is happening is actually people breaking free from a open air prison, from a, a, a concentration camp. That's what's happening. Yeah. And so for, but for other folks, it was kind of the hesitancy of like, wait a minute, politically, how do we, and it's not that complicated if you are, if you have integrity. Mm-mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think there are people who think that killing soldiers and kidnapping soldiers is different from killing civilians and kidnapping civilians. But I don't think that means that you change your position on the occupation. Of course. Um, and what about, tell us, another part, uh, part of your program, just looking at it right now, is cut the military budget by 90%, peace, not war with China and Russia. So tell, tell us about your position on those two countries. I mean, for one... Um, we are anti-imperialist. And so anything that is supportive of the imperialist project, we're not going to support. And we understand that geopolitically, China is growing, is growing economically and is growing as a force in, in geopolitics and, and geostrategy. And the United States has never been one to kind of allow for multipolarity to be a thing. 
Um, in fact, it has done the complete opposite. And so more than anything, our desire is to be able to avoid any type of imperialist war against China or Russia. We do believe that the unipolarity that the United States has created has been a deadly one and has been one that has been on the basis of war, of occupation and invasion. I mean, we have a U.S. military budget that is over a trillion dollars. Again, trillion dollars that could be utilized for other things that we need to be able to sustain the life of people in this country. We have over a thousand military bases all across the world. We have projects like NATO, AFRICOM the Southern Command. These are all there precisely to maintain the hegemony of the United States militarily, economically, and politically all over the world. And so who gave the United States the authority to be the police of the world? Um, there is no moral, like the United States has no moral authority when it's actually being criminal against its own people. It, sh it should not be, right. you know? And so when we are saying that we are proposing the cut of 90% of the military budget is because the military doesn't need that budget. They really don't, unless the plan and the intention is to have control of, of over, over, over the world, yeah. which is basically what the intention has been. And so our position, again, more than anything, is that if we want to build, because everything is about national security, to build national security, we need to be able to build justice within this country. We need to be able to build a society where people feel safe in this country. And safety comes by supplying the needs mm -hmm. of people, right. not by gauging, engaging in war with other countries. Which could lead to World War III. Of course. Yeah. But they don't care. I know. That's what's so scary. They don't care. This is, I think that, the, you know, the Israel, uh, the war in Gaza is bringing out the rank hypocrisy that we always know is there. But this is interesting. Today, uh, someone tweeted out. A, a tweet from Hillary Clinton. People screen grab this. It's from uh, 31022, uh, March 10th, 2022. And Hillary writes, if Russian leadership would rather not be accused of committing war crimes, they should stop bombing hospitals. Has she said anything about Israel's bombing well, of hospitals? You know what she did say, though? She did say that Israel had the right to defend itself. Yeah, of course, right. right? Because so, that's defending yourself, yeah. bombing refugee camps and hospitals yeah. and depriving premature babies yeah. of oxygen. But it shows also is a hypocrisy and, and it's also racist. Mm. Whose lives is valuable? Right. Again, I'm going back to my nine-year-old son. Yeah. When this whole thing broke out, we were having conversations because people were in his school, you know, um, gathering uh, clothes and stuff for... Ukrainian refugees, right? Yeah. And we engaged in a conversation and he said, because he knows about Palestine, he knows about the Gaza Strip. He wears the kaffiyeh, right? He wears the kaffiyeh in his head. And he said, why don't they do that for Palestine? And, it's a, he, and it was a nine-year-old who asked that question. Why don't they do that for Haitians? Why don't they, like, it's, well it's why don't they do that for, for people in Africa? They will not right. even voice concern because for them, people... Living in these territories are not human. Just like people in the South Bronx are not human. They're so disconnected from the realities of poor, black, brown, indigenous people in this country that they don't even acknowledge people's humanity. And so for Hillary Clinton to put that out, 
man, she's been thinking. Like, that's how she thinks. Yeah, of course. That's how they She doesn't all, want to cease fire. That's all how they, they yeah. all how they think. She's consistent, to be, to her credit. She's, she's very, consistent. very uh, anti-Arab, very, whether it's Libya or yeah, Palestine. Very consistent. Yeah. They're not falling out of line. They yeah. know. They, that's who so they've always disgusting. been. That's who they've always been. That's why I'm saying, like, to think about vote blue no matter who as an option, as something that will change, has it changed? We've been playing right. this game for how many decades? Now? Right. It hasn't and every election, it's the, this is the election that everything's at stake. You know. But it, but I think it is interesting that the Biden response, I think, is is kind of poking a hole in that oh, for yeah. people who used to be. The, no one really identifies as blue, no matter who, because that's kind of a pejorative term. Yeah. But people who I used to think really would would prioritize, no matter what, we got to focus on getting Trump out. I think with this Biden thing, they don't. People are just not. They, they don't see that as a as a moral. Um, call anymore because they are rightfully disgusted with Biden's response. And like you said, it's not unique to Biden. But yeah, I think that they're, this is shattering the idea that the Democrat is always better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, too, we need to look at the large population of people that don't vote and why right, they don't course, engage yeah. in voting. And part of it is like there's a level of demoralization and there's a level of hopelessness and cynicism that has been created by the two-party system because people know that they're not going to resolve any of the issues. And so I think, again, with with the campaign, with the work that we do as a party, one of the things that we want to do is actually enlighten, like like bring bring to, to life the hope and the possibility that lives in our capacity to make the changes necessary. Not putting our hope into this corporate duopoly and expect them to be the ones to make the changes that we need to make for ourselves, that we should be taking political action for every day. And so I think, you know, there's been a lot of enthusiasm. There's been a lot of, like, hopeful, hopeful reactions by many people, old and, and young, um, towards the campaign. I mean, we have... In these last three days, we've had hundreds. I'm talking about more than 400 people wanting to volunteer to the campaign in just three days. Like people are looking. They're looking for something. They have been given poison every day of their lives. They're looking for that clean glass of water. They're looking for something that they could invest time, energy, and hopes and aspirations in. And so I feel like, you know, only working class instruments can provide that. Only working class spaces can provide that with the character and the, and the disposition and the commitment to build a new society. But again, not every four years, but every day. Right. Now, going back to the every four year part, though, uh, what's, where do you guys have ballot access? Um, in 2020, we ran a campaign with Gloria Larriva. So shout out to Gloria. She's been amazing and, uh, huge part of the party. Um, in 2020, during COVID, we were able to get access to 15 states um, in the ballot. Our desire is to be able to surpass that now. And so we're doing a lot of work right now in uh, organizing the groups of petitioning that are going to happen because each state is different. Like, for example, in New York City, to be able to get in the ballot, you need, a, you need close to 90,000 signatures. And 90,000 because they need to be Verified right. reality is 45. So you need to get the double to be able to verify and make so sure you need 90 for the 45. Exa exactly. And so there's a, uh, and again, a lot of it is money. A lot of it is, you know, how much money do you have to run these petition drives to do this campaigning? Um, how many volunteers you have in every state again has a different, um, law or a different number. And so we're organizing that as we speak. And so we're really excited. Um, again, because it has to do, yes, 
It's not a protest vote. vote. It's, a, it's a vote to be able to build a political project, a political instrument of the working class that will gain the power, the force of the working class to be able to compete um, as we should be able to with capitalism. I'm going to ask you like a corny question. Uh, who are your heroes? Oh, my God. Who, you know what? You know what's interesting? Oh my, most of my heroes have been locked up. Um, <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> political prisoners. And so I, I had the immense pleasure, and I shared the picture with you, um, because one of my biggest inspirations and references is Leila Khalid. Oh, yeah. Um, I read Leila Khalid's autobiography. I think, you know, forever, whoever is watching, they should totally look up Leila Khalid's um, autobiography. I think that there's a PDF online. Um, but can you just give like a short summary of who she is? For Well, Leila Khalid is a legendary historical leader of the Palestinian struggle and the liberation of, of Palestine. And she did a lot of direct actions um, that landed her in prison. And then, you know, she had to do six surgeries to do it again. <laughs> so she didn't have enough doing it once. Right. She, she went on and did it again. And um, and she wrote a book, uh, her autobiography. And in her autobiography, she mentions the Caribbean. And it was a first time for me. I mean, I grew up in that church that was international by 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 character, but was internationalist right. by, in politics and conviction. And I remember reading that book at 17 and saying, why is this Arab woman writing about the dictatorship in the Dominican Republic and talking about Puerto Rico? Um, and it was, you know, for me, it was like shocking. Like you have this life where you are engaged in struggle and you talk about, you know, just her life as a woman and struggle and politics and all these different things. And you highlight what's happening across the world like and you're committed to that too and you find the interlocking yeah. relationship between these struggles and so for me it was huge to read that and I've reread it you know many times over and I had the opportunity to go to South Africa for Dilemmas of Humanities which is a conference that has happened um and brings together over hundreds of political organizations, parties, and, and popular movements together. The first one happened in 2004, the second one in 2015, and this third one happened just recently in Johannesburg, South Africa. And she was invited to come, but I didn't realize that we would be in the opening panel together. And we had the opportunity to sit right next to each other. And I've never really gotten like that celebrity yeah. thing, like star, uh, star yeah, star. never, never. And I've met a lot of people. Like you know, Fidel is another one that for me is like, you know, Fidel Castro is is a, a huge reference for yeah. me. And I was sitting right next to Leila Khalid, and I was like a five year old. Right. I was like, oh my god, what do I say? I don't have any words. And all I did was turn around and say thank you, you know. And and then we engaged in a in a conversation, and she said, you know, Habibi, the struggle for Palestine is a struggle for humanity. And she thanked, she thanked us, um, not me, but thanked us, everyone who had been taking the streets since October 8th in the United States. And I showed her the picture. She was really emotional. And so we got to keep doing this. We got to keep doing this because there's been folks who have been doing this, you know, for a long, long time and who actually have their hopes and aspirations and a new generation of people that will take on you know, resisting empire, resisting colonialism. And so for me, meeting her was like... Yeah, I see you're getting emotional now. You guys may not be able to see it if you're not <laughs> close up on, on uh, Claudia, but yeah. you've got the... Yeah, it was... Uh, it was near tears. 
Yeah, it was a huge moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been so great. Any final words for the audience? Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you yeah, for inviting me. Of course, me. yeah. Um, so glad to do this. It's glad to do it. I, I just, I was excited to be invited. And, we, you know, we want to encourage people to continue to be out in the streets, to do bold acts, courageous acts. There are a lot of people who are suffering in Gaza, in Africa, in the Caribbean, and in the United States. And the biggest the biggest ask is to join political organization, to join organized struggle, to fight the isolation that capitalism imposes on us. And thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.